Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 93. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? John, I am fantastic. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Great, Nick. Hey, so this week is the first of a two-parter. Shocking. When we interview somebody, it's at least a two-parter. Um, I think this one is really interesting. It is uh, Paul Green, and he's the chief development officer and also started uh, with the company as CIO, chief information officer, at Angel MedFlight. Um, and we had a wide-ranging conversation. I'm really excited for people to hear about this. Yeah, for sure. I would say that his background is super interesting, and I really liked a lot of the things he had to say about attention to detail. But I'm not going to give too much away, John. Absolutely, yeah. So the first uh, part of this conversation, uh, we talk a lot about uh, his general thoughts on leadership and team building. It's it's great stuff. So let's uh, dive right into it. Part one with Paul Green. Chief Development Officer of Angel Medflight. Paul Green, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing really well. Um, maybe you can introduce yourself and tell us what it is that you do. Um, I am Paul Green. I'm the Chief Development Officer at Angel MedFlight Worldwide Air Ambulance. Um, I was previously the CIO, Chief Information Officer, when I started. Um, and I was the Chief Information Officer of my previous company as well prior to that. And I was there for a public company for 17 years. I can tell that you were in IT because part of the job there is always describing what the acronyms mean. Yes, absolutely. It's pretty funny. Like, I didn't even know what CIO was when I, well, I started in IT in 1998, so super early. And it, it was just this really weird situation where I'm a kid and I was thrust into this job. Hey, you understand computers, come and work for us. And I was immediately made network administrator of a public company. And Nobody else there knew anything about computers. And it's like, you're going to do all this, 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 and this. And I was talking to the CFO and I'm like, you're aware that I'm a kid, right? He goes, yeah, but you know more than all these guys. And I was like, okay. And it all kind of snowballed from like an incident where we were installing or they were installing a new property management system. And I happened to work there as a night auditor while I was in college and the guy couldn't figure it out. And so during that night, I was bored. So I just went in the room and I was like, I'll just set it all up for this guy. And when he comes in in the morning, it'll be done. And so I did. I just set it all up, built the network, had everything all plugged in. You know, we're ready to rock and roll. The next morning, the guy comes in and he's like, how you doing? I was like, oh, I'm good. I was like, hey, all your stuff works now. I know you were having some trouble last night. So I went ahead and made sure it worked. He's like, really? He's like, how did you get the server to work? And I was like, well, you left the passwords right there. So everything is good. And then... It was all this old Dell Optiplex hardware. And I don't know if you guys know much about like Dell in the late 90s, but they had the worst motherboards ever. And then they didn't come with network cards. So you had to buy the network card or it was shipped separately. And so I had to install all these things. Then they had Windows 98, which doesn't have networking by default. So you've got to install the networking TCP IP stack. And it's like this whole nightmare. And I was like, now people like I joke about it all the time. I'm like, I can now install an entire network by you know, doing nothing essentially nowadays versus back then in order for me to get a computer up and running, I'm like eight hours deep. Now I'm like 15 minutes deep 
And I'm like, all right, what's next? You know, it's, it's just so different. And it's like, I don't, you know, it's, it's terrible for the kids that are coming up these days because you actually had to learn things as you moved up through the ranks and you had to learn better ways to do your own job and save time and just to figure it out better. And the learning steps and things that took place to actually install an OS on a system, get networking, working, all these little things that had to happen. Nobody nowadays knows what that is because it doesn't exist. No, it definitely does not. And the pain doesn't exist anymore. Oh yeah. There's no pain. You know, it now is more about software than hardware. And it was more about hardware than software when I was coming up. And it was just a totally different experience, you know, and you had to really put a lot of thought process into what you did. There was not a lot of best practices out there. You know, there was no good right way or wrong way to build a network. It's however someone figured it out. And then somebody might've done it better than somebody else. And you were kind of like, okay, but now it's, it's very different. You know, you, there's consultants, there's this person, there's that person. And there's, there's somebody you could pay to do it for you versus back then there was nobody you could pay to do it for you. And so it's, it's a very different environment than it was. And I, I love the fact that I came up through that environment because I think about things so totally differently than anybody else. Like, you know, I was told one day, Oh, you think outside the box. And I'm like, I didn't even know there was a box. (laughs) Like I just do what I want. And you know, it, my one CFO says, well, don't ever tell that to anybody. I'm like, I don't care. Like I didn't come into this job or I didn't start it because I was going to do it a certain way. Or I felt there was like a, I was following somebody or whatever it was. I was doing my own thing. And I, you know, I was just following my dad and my grandpa's lead. You do it right. And you do it the first time. Right. And you, everything counts. And that's what I would do. Like, I didn't care what it was. If, it was as simple as zip tying the wires correctly inside of the server case so that it all looked really nice and pretty. I was going to do that because everything mattered to me, whether it was inside the box or outside the box. And you don't see a lot of that anymore. Like I go into a lot of server rooms and a lot of colos and I always laugh because there's wires everywhere. And I'm like, God, I'd fire this person. Whoever did this, I'd fire him. You know, they're probably a good person, but I'm like, everything matters, you know, and I want everything to be so perfect because it just shows how much you care for your job. And it shows how much you're willing to go through to make sure that what you're done, what you did in your work product is perfect, you know, and it's just a very different, you know, thing. I probably wouldn't fire them, but like I would you know, coach them <laughs> to make it better, but it, it's all those little things, you know, and I think little things count. I think the details are what really counts in it and the difference between having a nice app And having a really, really good app is the details. And not a lot of people think about that kind of stuff. But, you know, Instagram did not get famous because they had this mediocre app. They built an app that was so polished that when it was released, that you couldn't help but want to use it because it was so well done. Versus like other apps that came out on phones. There was a, it took a really long time for like Facebook, for instance, did really, really well on the computer, but their app took a really long time for people to really adopt it broadly on mobile phones because it just wasn't as polished as say Instagram right out of the, back of the box. And I think that changes. I think that's the difference between like wanting something polished versus not, or like what I think Google does now. And I always joke to people like, oh, that Google thing is great. I'm like, yeah, but that's a beta because everything they release is a beta. So they're never in trouble if it doesn't work great. Because you're using a beta. You signed up for that right off the bat. So, like, they do a really good job. But I think a lot of it is, you know, based on a conversation we had earlier, what I think a lot of it is just for them to test markets and for them to test usability on certain things and see what bites or push another product forward, not necessarily their own product, because they know that if they get into the that business or they start that business, somebody else is going to try to do better than them. And they don't want to, you know, and I think a lot of it is not necessarily so their product could be the one that wins. It's because they want to push somebody else to be better so they don't have to deal with it long term. Well, even before you you walk right past it, I really like the idea of polish being paying attention to the accumulation of a bunch of little tiny details. Right. And and even the idea of thinking outside the box is like, I mean, you have to think inside the box first. I think a lot of. uh, IT people don't think about opening up that box. I actually oh, remember yeah. the, 
the day when I was like, oh, you know what? It's actually too expensive for us as an organization to open up the towers. Like we really need to pay somebody else to do that because it's too expensive for us to do it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm sorry, guys. I actually wanted to ask the question, Paul. Do you feel like that appreciation for somebody paying attention to those deep details and taking pride in what they do, showing off things like beautiful cable management, is that something that managers appreciate nowadays compared to yesteryear, or does it really depend on their experience? I think it depends on the manager's experience because I've seen it both ways. Um, I had an old CFO who could care less, didn't care about the details. He just basically was like, oh, you did it. You know, and he's like, whatever. Versus I had a recent CFO, amazing gentleman. And he was like, every detail mattered to him. He would come in and he would like look at stuff. And he'd be like, wow, that's so nice. And he... I think he appreciated cleanliness and for him, it was less about the details, you know, cause I don't necessarily think he looked at it that way, but he looked at how clean something was done. Like how clean was this installed or, you know, whatever we were doing. And he really liked that. He, everything for him had to be perfect. And maybe he was a little OCD. I don't know, but like, so that I think lends itself really well to paying attention to those details because everything has a place and you put it in its place. Um, but not all managers are like that. But, you know, in my years in IT, I've seen the entire spectrum of management kind of come and go. And, you know, I don't necessarily, I'm a very different kind of manager in the sense that if I'm not willing to do it myself, I should never have to ask you as an employee to do it. And to me, I work with you as a colleague and not, you are not my subordinate in the sense that, I'm not going to get dirty with you in the weeds, or I'm not going to sit here for five hours and figure out how to figure this out with you. You know, you, you have to be willing to work alongside every single one of your staff members to get anything done that needs to be done. And along that time that you're doing that, you need to help them out and you need to guide them. And a lot, you know, I had a conversation a few weeks ago and somebody was like, why did you only ask them questions and not tell them what to do? And I was like, cause it's not my job to tell you how to do your job. It's my job to help you figure out how to do it on your own. And so I was asking a lot of really good questions and some of the stuff was like, it might've seemed way off base to somebody who was just listening, but I was trying to get them in the right mindset to think about what they were doing and how they were going to resolve that issue. And kind of, sometimes I'll even do it where it's like an analogy about something completely different or I'll go off topic. So that when I have to come back on topic, they've already got the mindset like, Oh, okay. I can apply that kind of thinking to this or move forward this way because you don't always people, everybody learns differently. And I think a lot of it is how do you interact with that staff member and paying attention to how they understand things and paying attention, to how they learn. Um, I do a lot of lunches with people. Like we have like team lunches, we go out, we hang out and things that are non-work related so I can understand your personality and how you act and how you work because it really helps you out tremendously moving forward on how you interact with that person as a leader because you need that person to work a certain way and everybody needs to be talked to differently. And, you know, it's, I always hate the term. I hate it when someone says, Oh, you're their supervisor or you're their, you know, you're, you're their manager. And I'm like, I don't have supervisors and I don't have managers. I only have leaders and every single person, whether it's me or the person below me who has got a staff, they're all leaders. And every single one of those people's job is to make that person below them better. Because at the end of the day, every one of those people who's better makes you as a leader overall better and makes the organization better. And if you can get every single person to buy into leadership, it's going to do really, really well. Um, there's actually a book. I have it here somewhere. Um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And it's a great book to put you in the mindset of why do you do something and how do you get people to follow you? And someone was telling me, oh, it's bad to follow. It's like, no, it's not. You need somebody to respect you and to be 100% on board with your thought process and why you're doing something. And there's no better way to do that than to have a conversation about a book like, you know, Start With Why. We actually do technically within my organization. I started a book club and every Thursday, every other Thursday, 
we have cocktails and we talk about two chapters of the book. And, you know, after that book, we're going to move into another book called Talking to Strangers because there's this whole thought process I have where start with why. Why are you doing something? And then we're going to move on to the next piece of it, which is now that you understand what you're doing, now you're going to learn how to talk to those people that you're doing it for and with. And you could do some amazing things if you just help everybody within your organization be better at what they're doing. You know, and I think now and, you know, it's 2020. And if you look at the way that IT has gone, IT prior to 2020 was always thought of as an afterthought. And it shouldn't have been, you know, IT in the last 10 years should have been the forefront of any organization because it makes it better. And you need leaders that help understand operations and help understand what a company is trying to do. And how do you, when you get your goal, and this is what this company is for, like for instance, Angel MedFlight, our goal is to provide the best possible patient care to our patients. And in order to do that, how do you put together the right IT for that mission? And you need to understand operations within your organization just as much as you need to understand the IT so you can associate the proper IT with the organization. And stop thinking about, you know, we, I, I just literally had a conversation with one of my employees. And he's like, well, why don't we just get SD-WAN? I'm like, why? Why do you want it so bad? Well, because they say that's what you should get. I'm like, stop worrying about what the product is and find the product that works best for your situation and your goal. You know, it may not be SD-WAN, just because it's a really cool tagline, like everybody wants to talk about cloud computers now, and all I call is other people's computers, and they don't get that, it's kind of funny, but it's like, stop worrying about that tagline or that term or one of those, you know, fancy acronyms that everybody wants to talk about these days and start trying to figure out what's the proper technology that gives my company's goal the best possible chance to succeed. And once you figure that out, you're going to be doing so much better in the long run. Absolutely. And while you're talking, all I could think of was three signs of a miserable job by Patrick Lencioni. I don't know if you ever read that one, but one I have not, I've heard of it, but I, I, I've been wanting to read it, but I have this whole, you know, yeah, book club thing. <laughs> well, maybe you could add it because one of the one of the things was they don't feel like they have a purpose, and it sounds like you're doing a really good job in your leadership role and teaching your the leaders under you to help people understand why they need to do things a certain way, how they fit in with the company's mission, and how they help achieve the purpose of the organization. I feel like so many people work somewhere and they do a thing which is IT you know I'm a help desk guy or gal something like that but I may not necessarily know how to make the connection between me closing tickets and the purpose of the company oh, unfortunately absolutely. yeah absolutely I think that when you give somebody purpose in their role they're going to give 110% every day if they agree with the purpose and it's you know, I was at the VMware all hands meeting last year. And one of the things that I talked about was possibilities. And, you know, I was asked just literally prior to that, like a month prior to that, if I thought I was changing the world with what we do. And I was like, no, I was like, we don't change the world. But what we are as an organization is a gateway and we provide possibilities to our patients and just maybe one of our patients is going to change the world or one of their kids is going to change the world because we gave them a second chance at life. There's all these people that might change the world. We're just helping them on that path. And in turn, that's what the VMware employees and staff do is they're building products that we as Angel MedFlight use that allow us to save people's lives and change their outcome. And then one of those people might change the world. So by default, you're not just some company who's making a software product or making some kind of really fancy underlaying architecture that's mind-blowing to people if you really start getting into the weeds of how it works. You're actually providing a product that can change people's lives and therefore change the world one person at a time. You know, and I try to instill that in all of my employees is that what you do is not just IT and what you do is not just bringing up a workstation and giving it to that new employee, doing an onboarding process. What you're doing is 
the fundamental underlying reason why Angel MedFlight can do what it does, which is change people's lives. And the better you are at your job, the better those people who are directly touching the patients can be at their job. And the better they are at their job, the better chance that patient has at the best possible outcome. And it's a trickle down effect. And every single person plays a role on that. And I think that you just need to help people understand what role they play and how much they mean to what these outcomes are going to be and these goals of these organizations. And it's tough because not all organizations work that way. And then in some organizations, you have tens of thousands of employees. And so how do you figure that out as a group or as an organization? I think some companies have done that really well. Like if you go to a VMware Everybody is very happy working there. You go to like an Apple, fundamentally, they feel like they're really happy. Like you go to an Apple store and I don't understand why they're so happy to work at the Apple store, but they all, you know, you go in and like everybody, you feel like they like love this place. And that shows, I think that's why, you know, people love buying Apple products. or They love going to an Apple store is because you walk into one of those stores and you feel like it's infectious. Every single person there is so excited about the product that they're talking to you about. And they're not really trying to sell you anything. They're just telling you how this product is and how cool it is and what it does and blah, blah, blah. And then you are like, I have to buy it. I don't need it, but I'm going to buy it. Why do I need a $1,500 cell phone? But you're going to buy it because it's so infectious the way that they, you know, they, and they, I, I'm sure they have a lot of thought process and how they motivate their employees and how they train them because, it's a very unique buying experience. Yeah, it reminds me of Chick Fil A. Actually, went the, by through the drive-through today for lunch. So did and I. With the, with the simple words, "Have a blessed day," you just don't hear everybody say that, and it just kind of uplifts you. And you know, maybe it was training, maybe it wasn't, but I don't think I've ever encountered someone that was unhappy at a Chick Fil A. Neither have I. Yeah, here they don't say "Have a blessed day." They say, um, oh, they say something else. And I was joking because I was on the phone at the time and the lady said it and I made a joke back to the person I was on the phone with. But yeah, you don't you don't go to a Chick-fil-A and it's not a great moment. Your whole day is better after you have Chick-fil-A and they're doing like 40% better during the pandemic. Are you kidding me? Like how much fast food can you sell? But then you go to the same thing, go to an In-N-Out. I've never had bad service at In-N-Out. I've never felt like the employee did not want to be serving me my hamburger at In-N-Out for $4.10, whatever it is. It's so cheap. And it's like, wow, how did these organizations have all these employees that are so happy to do their jobs? You know, because you go to a Walmart, you don't get the same experience. You know, it just doesn't exist. And so how do these organizations have this overwhelming morale within their employee group that is so infectious that you want to be a, a... customer of theirs and you're loyal to that you know and it's it's very interesting yeah because it's not just the words right um it's it's the attitude and the culture that they're transmitting through their attitude i there's this like hilarious and at the same time terrible movie called idiocracy um and there's this scene like you can probably find it on youtube where they're walking into a, a future costco and there's this guy and he's just droning on and on as a greeter and he's saying welcome to costco i love you welcome to costco i love you and it's i mean but it's just droning right he's not transmitting an enthusiastic culture um which is probably not fair to costco because i think all those people are i I hear treated very well and and pretty much love costco right but um uh he, he was it was probably off the mark probably more making fun of walmart but um it's again what i'm trying to get at is it's not the words it's the transmission of the enthusiasm for the culture uh that the employee as a representative of that culture is you know uh transmitting as they're facing the customer and that if you pay attention to that then it comes across no matter what the words are well absolutely you know enthusiasm for your organization is infectious and it will come across when you're talking about your organization and you can feel it you know, I've been in plenty of meetings where like, I'm just not impressed with the person who's talking to me. And like, if, if you're trying to get me on board with what you're doing, I need to feel that you're on board with what you're doing. And if I don't feel that way, then why would I want to join what you're trying to tell me to join? You know, and it's interesting. I, how do you, as a leader, get people on board 
but in a way that's not just saying the words, right? Because I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, when people start just reciting like internal slogans, instead of like, you know, approaching things with a critical eye and saying, yeah, I have a problem with that, but that's amazing. And that I'm enthusiastic about. Um, there's this, sometimes this like almost like cult like mentality that comes across when people are uncritically reciting slogans to you. And, and I, I wonder from your seat, how do you fight that? I don't really use any company slogans. I mean, I do, but I also make some up. So, um, you know, it, it's, I always tell people don't tell somebody how to do something, show them. And you need to show people what a company means to you so they can feel the same way and or understand what you feel and then, then interpret that the way that they want so they can be on board. And, you know, I just do what I do. And then I, I talk to people a certain way, you know, I try to relate everything to that individual person a lot of the times. And, you know, I had a conversation like this probably like two years ago and our COO at the time was like, has any one of your employees ever told you no? And I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, I get told no all the time. He's like, no, but seriously, he's like, do they ever say no? Like they won't do something. And he's like, if you ask so-and-so to go do this, would they do it for you? And I'm like, oh yeah, they do it. They wouldn't even question me because you have to build that rapport and that trust relationship with your staff and your team so that when you ask them to do something, they don't need to question you because they know that what you're saying and what you want done is the right thing to do because you've shown them over time that you're not going to lead them down the wrong path and they're just going to do it. And, you know, I had to really sit back and think for a while when he asked, I was like, I don't know that anybody has ever told me no since I was, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, it's been so long that I have no idea. I've never, I can't even remember a single time that I was told no, but I've always been, you know, since the day I got my first job, super gung-ho about it. I never say no to doing something. Even if I didn't know how to do it, I would say yes. Because I was like, I'll figure it out. Like, why, how, you know, I would say no. Like, as I got older, I would say no if it's something that I absolutely knew that there's no way that I could do. But, like, if it's something that was, like, you know, questionable, like, yeah, yeah I could do that. Let's, let's do And then I'd figure it out. But, you know, maybe it didn't always go perfectly as planned, but like, I just wouldn't say no. And so, like, I think that that shows as you move up through the ranks and, you you know, if you could show an employee that anything is possible and that they're going to start thinking the same way and they'll start doing that exact same thing. You know, if I was going to give myself some advice or somebody else who's just starting out in IT, it'd be, you know anything that you're asked to do, just say yes. You know, rarely should you say no unless you know you absolutely cannot do it. There's plenty of materials out there to learn. You can Google something, you can watch a YouTube video, you can do whatever it is. You know, you always have to be willing to do whatever it takes and then ask for more work. You know, one of the greatest things I like about an employee is when you have spare time, if you go and say, hey, you know, I'm finished for the day, do you have anything else that I can do? I know that you are willing to work and I'm going to start putting you in a position to get more work and get harder work and maybe let you branch out a little bit. So you'll start learning something that you did not expect to learn, you know, things like that. And, you know, I have an employee who is really, really good with, you know, IT stuff, but not great with firewalls at one point and started shifting things that he was doing to prepare him for the eventual thought that, he was going to start working on the firewalls and he was going to start understanding how that worked. And he was going to start understanding those interfaces. And now when you speak to him, he's like knows everything about firewalls and understands how they work and can make the changes and can understand how to read the reporting and, you know, speak to our SOC that handles the day to day. And it completely changes the way that an employee thinks when you put them in a position where they learn how to do something and then they're super successful with it. And now they've got 
a much better feeling about themselves and they know that anything is possible and you know their self-esteem has increased exponentially and they're going to be doing better at what they do and their job is going to be better long term because they're now going to be more confident you know and I think a lot of people when they're first starting out don't have that confidence level that they need because they might know how to do it, but they don't have the confidence level because nobody has helped show them that they can do these things. It's interesting what you're talking about. It almost sounds like um, you're talking about people saying yes to or asking for projects that are right that are that are a stretch, right? They're not 100 percent in the com in the in the comfort zone. They're a little bit beyond you know, something, ooh, I'm going to have to stretch to learn how to do that, right? But then it also sounds like you're talking about on the other side, a leader needs to have that candid conversation. Hey, I know this this is going to be a stretch for you, and that's okay. Oh, absolutely. You know, and always set your employee up for success. You know, if you feel like this is a really big stretch, you should say something. If you don't think it's a really big stretch, just kind of set them up like, hey, I know you can do this. Let's go make this happen. You know, if you need a little bit of help, come and ask me and, you know, kind of guide them down a path. But don't like, don't make it obvious like, oh, I don't know if you can do this. But if it's something where it's like, that's a really big stretch for this person, I kind of cheat a little bit in the sense that like, I'll give them little projects leading up to what I think ultimately will be this big stretch to get them in the thought process and the mindset that they're not going to be so it's not gonna be so daunting for them to undertake. And you know, there's so many different ways you can do that. Like I have a, you know, actually I, I won't even get into that, but you could do different things where you could really set somebody up for success down a path by just showing them, by giving them projects that they can be really successful at. And it doesn't matter how big or small the project is, you just have to show that person that they can be successful. And then those projects can get bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on. Now, do you see some of those qualities in these people during the interview process that you can then put to work to give them stretch goals? Or is it only through allowing them to get their feet wet, being onboarded at the company, and really doing some of the work before you can make that determination as to whether they're really going to stretch? It's a combination of both. Um, sometimes people do surprise you. Um, but like at this point, I've been hiring people for so long. I couldn't tell you how many people I've hired or fired. It's some obscene number at this point. Um, but, you know, when I, during that hiring process, you know, I'm always looking for somebody who answers questions a certain way because I want to know that they're willing to give 110%, that they're willing to kind of get out of their comfort zone. Um, I ask a lot of like really outlandish questions and sometimes they may not even be related to IT because I don't need an IT answer. I need a real world answer. What would you do in this situation to see if they can think outside of the box to see what their thought process is? You know, a lot of times, you know, people are looking for education when they're hiring somebody. I'm not looking for education. I'm looking for your thought process. I'm looking for your attitude. I'm looking for your mindset. I need to know if you're going to fit with my team. And if you're going to fit with my team, then I know you're going to be good at your job, regardless of what your degree is and what college you went to. Because now I've built a team and a team is better than one person. And I'm going to look for the person who best fits with my team. It's just like any other team that you assemble. Um, there's a movie out there uh, about the Oakland A's Moneyball, where they started looking for the right players based on analytics and how they would fit with the team. They assembled the team for the smallest amount of money ever in the history of the major league baseball. I don't even know if that's true, but there was a very small amount of money that they assembled this team. And once they assembled that team, they went on to dominate baseball for the next two years. And they had the lowest payroll or something like that in baseball at the time. And that's how you build a team. You don't need to have the highest draft pick because that's not who makes your team better necessarily. You know, it might've been the 199th draft pick like a Tom Brady that makes your team better. It's a proven fact. And it's how are you going to integrate that new team member into your team to make your team the best that it can be, you know, and even looking outside of it for people, um, 
it doesn't always have to be an IT person to come in because it depends on what their role is going to be. It might be an IT function, but their role is not necessarily IT. And so you can look outside of that, especially like with help desk and, you know, things of that nature. Like all too often I see people are like, well, you have to have this, 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 this. And I'm like, they're just help desk. I need somebody who can talk to somebody properly, who can communicate really, really well. I need somebody who can, you know, describe the thought process of what they're trying to help out with because it's easier. You know, if, if, if the person's too IT, they don't have good communication skills generally. And it's, you, you're looking for a better communicator and less an IT person when you're looking for help desk. And it depends on the help desk position, obviously, but like, you know, you got to look at all those different roles and then find the right fit for that role. So like, you don't always have to, you know, go get that IT person to do the job when a really good communicator would actually probably be better at the job. That's interesting. You're talking about um, kind of skills fit for a role as opposed to uh, um, like kind of a traditional like background, you know, like, or, or I guess it harkens back to what you were saying earlier about like maybe like job history or, you know, um, degree or college, which is more of like a filter function, right? Correct. And instead of finding somebody who can actually do the job, which might be harder. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, perfect example is my lead developer and the guy who is responsible for building the app that we have, which is called Medlog 2. It is a very next generation app that does medical record charting on an iPad and you know this whole architecture and design and layout and everything they're like this is what I want to build and we were told no by a bunch of people and he's like I can do it he is a marine he was the lead mechanic and or corpsman on a helicopter in the marines he was on a boat uh, he did that for four years and he is now a developer and if you were straight up just looking at programming, you'd be like, oh, okay, I'm not going to hire this guy. But when you start looking at all of his job history and what he had to do, he had to think outside the box. He had to work on something in an environment that was not necessarily the perfect environment. You know, he's on a ship in the middle of the ocean somewhere and he's got to fix a helicopter. Well, his thought process is going to be very different than somebody who's used to sitting in a cushy air conditioned office all day and doing the same, you know, doing their job. So you look at that person's job history and where they come from, and they're going to deliver you a product that's leaps and bounds better than that person who's only done the same job for their entire career because their thought process is so completely different. You know, my team is made up of somebody who worked at Best Buy and in IT and is big into fish tanks. And we have another gentleman who came from the credit card industry in help desk position and Salesforce. And then we have our developer who is a former Marine. And you put all those people together and you have this, you know, it's almost like building a group of superheroes because they all come from different walks of life. They all have a different thought process to what they do. But they gel so well together that their end product and their work product is like nothing else anybody else is going to deliver because it's such a unique group. And so therefore, it delivers these really unique outcomes. And you're able to put them in positions that you wouldn't put a traditional straight IT team in because they don't have that work experience. So they don't have that thought process. And so that's where we were talking about earlier about a box the box doesn't exist for my team. You know, it's, here's what we want to go for. Here's our goal. Let's figure out how to get there. And then we just do it, whatever that is. And, you know, I think that that's really key to when you're assembling your team is finding all those pieces that fit together really, really well, because you know what you have in your mind of how you want that team to operate. Yeah. All I could think of was the book range by David Epstein. I don't know if you've ever read that one. But he talks about how generalists with different experiences, different job experiences, just like what you described, actually become better specialists in the long run 
than someone who's specialized early. And he kind of, he starts off by comparing Tiger Woods to Roger Federer. And he gives all these different examples. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Highly recommend it. I'll have to look it up. But I love books like that. But it sounds like you've built a team of generalists with a wide range of experience that have become very good specialists. Absolutely. You know, and that's key is because if you start out, like let's say you start out in computer security and you went to college for computer security, you got out of college and you were in computer security, and the only thing you've ever done is computer security. You don't, you're not good at your job. You might be okay at your job and you might have excelled from a book perspective, but imagine get somebody who's seen a whole bunch of things firsthand, who's seen you know, started out on the help desk and saw the dumb things that the employees did and understood what they did when they were online or understood how they, they operated in different scenarios. And then maybe they moved on to a different department and they worked a little bit of help desk. And now you've got this really well-rounded person who understands more about the people. So when they come into security, they're looking at it a different way because security is not as straightforward as people want to think that it is. It's not just, you know, ones and zeros, and it's not just as easy as getting antivirus. It's about understanding people and how they operate and what they do. And, you know, we've instituted some really unique password requirements, and we did that based on understanding how our employees operate and the passwords that they were picking because we needed to offset what they were doing to make it more secure. And so a lot of it is you got to have people that can really read and understand people. I think a really good security specialist has to have a very well-rounded background because things are so different, you know, and I've always wondered like, how does the CIA or FBI hire those people that they have as they call them analysts? And it's not going to be the best book smart person. It's not, they're, you know, during that interview process, they have to be looking for certain, very specific, certain kinds of people to fit in those roles because you're not going to get this really super book smart person because it's not going to be that straightforward it's going to be so all over the board. Like, how do they interview for that? Like, how do they pick those people that when you watch a movie, it's like, wow, this is really cool. Like, how do they get that person? Because you know it has to exist in real life because you couldn't have just made that up that easily. You know, there's got to be some kind of real employee somewhere that they've based this off of. Well, I think Who needs that... to be on the show? <laughs> yeah, that would be a great interview. Um, I would. I always wonder, you know... I think something you said there about, you know, the real life experience and, and how people actually act, you know, there's this, um, it just, I think it sparked this thought of economic thinking and the idea that economists had for a long, long time that people act in their like enlightened, like self-interest, like their best self-interest. And then this kind of breakthrough in thought where they're like, oh, wait, no, people don't always do the thing that's best for them in the short, medium, or even long-term, right? Certainly not in the long-term. Like, you know, sometimes people are doing things, you know, for their short-term best interest that aren't, are going to undermine their long-term, you know, best interest. But a lot of times people don't even do things in the short-term that are, that are good for them, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, especially based on age group, you know. I made a lot of really poor decisions when I was a kid, you know, in my early 20s. But I think everybody does especially when you're in college and then you look back on it and you're like, Oh, could have done that differently. You know, like even now, like I'm 43, I have a race car that costs way more money than it should. I could have bought a freaking Ferrari by now. And it's probably really, really bad for my retirement, but I'm having such a great time building and racing it that I wouldn't change it for the world. And so like, it, I think it all depends on what you want your life outcome to be based on what those decisions you're going to make, you know, moving forward. And like, you know, everybody does their own thing in a very interesting way, especially these days I see stuff and I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. But, you know, people got to live their lives the way that, you know, on their own terms. And, you know, it's, I think that, you know, from a, like a business perspective for me, like if you're a leader right now, I think you should be setting up your employees for long-term success. And, you know, one of the things that I was told very early on by one of my um, CFOs is I wanted to do a lot of training. He's like, why do you want to train those people? 
he's like, you, we don't do that. And I'm like, why don't we do that? He's like, we don't do that. We don't make people better so they can go work for somebody else. And I was like, what? Why not? Like, they're still working for us. Like, if we want to be better as a company, we need these people to be the best that they can be because the outcome for us is going to be better. Yeah, sure, some people are going to leave and move on, but that happens everywhere. Like, you can't stop that. Like, are you trying to prevent the way that the world's been working for the last 2,000 plus years or whatever it is? Crazy, you know, like, that's just silly to me. Like, set people up for success. Because if you have an employee that you've trained and you've put on the path for success to get them to where you want to be because they love their job and where they're at, they're going to make you as a company more successful. Yeah, sure, they might leave eventually, but you're going to get the best out of them while they're there. And I would rather get the best out of you while you're working for me than not. Because now you're just this mediocre employee that's going to give me mediocre results. Why do I want that? I want that mediocre employee who starts, but we've helped them grow to be the best employee that they can be. And then they can be the best employee for us and themselves moving forward until they decide to move on and go do whatever they're going to do. Because that's going to be infectious. That employee is then in turn going to make another employee be like, wow, I need to be better because they're better and they're doing better. And it's, it's going to multiply. It's going to be infectious to the whole team. And if everybody has got that same thought process and everybody is somewhat competing against each other to be better, your organization is going to be better. And yeah, you're going to lose some people. It happens. I mean, look at you, John, you went on to Google, you left the greatest company in the United States of America right now, probably. I don't know. I don't make, I don't, you know, I'm at the U.S. News and World Report ranking these companies these days, but you're going to move on. But like, hopefully somebody during that time that you were at your previous company put you on a path that really set you up for success. And then it was your terms when you moved on to somebody else and not because of somebody else's terms. And I can tell you, he definitely made somebody better while he was at VMware. (laughs) <laughs> let's see there you go i mean and that that's what it's all about you know and you know helping people out on their path to success will help you out as a leader too i mean it's infectious like one of my favorite things is watching people grow and watching them do big things because it's exciting i mean especially when you're like wow i didn't think that person had that in them and you're like you're shocked and you're like wow this is great you know and some people don't always show that right off the bat. Or when you're like that person, you know that they're just like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this. And they're so negative about themselves. But then you see how excited they are when they prove to themselves that they're way better than they thought. I think that's probably my favorite is like when you really get somebody who doesn't think that they can be all they can be and then they are. And it's like, wow, look at that. Look at what you're doing. You know, look at what you've done for us and yourself. You know, and then from that moment on, they're going to be a tremendously better employee and you're going to enjoy working with them a lot more because now they understood and they found their why and they found their purpose. And it's going to be a great ride after that. you john that episode made me think twice about calling someone a manager or supervisor maybe we should just refer to them as leaders yeah definitely i I like that uh, parsing of language yeah it's very pc of us isn't it no but (laughs) paul has some fantastic things to say about leadership and i i just love the fact that he has the attitude of being down in the trenches supporting his employees and making them better. He, there was a great quote about him not telling people how to do their job, but it being his job to help them figure out how to do it on their own. Yeah, I really like that. That gets back to that idea of uh, coaching instead of uh, managing, right? Coaching somebody to uh, get to the right conclusion so that they can do it over and over again instead of just telling them what to do, which uh, fosters a environment of you just telling them what to do over and over again, which is, uh, as a leader, means that you have much higher overhead uh, with that person. I um, really like that as well. I 
loved the integration of uh, the the Moneyball book and movie into his philosophy of building a team. It just reminded me um, directly of that scene that's in the book. I don't know if people out there have read this book or seen the movie where um, the Oakland A's are are trying to re- uh, replace uh, Jason Giambi, you know, who's a superstar who's uh, signed uh, with the New York Yankees as a free agent, and they need to replace him. And, and they don't do it by trying to find a different superstar. They do it by uh, building up the team to be able to replace, you know, all the parts that he had um, as a superstar t- teammate. And um, I really like that idea of of building good teams as opposed to finding superstar people. Yeah. And that that's great. I need to watch the movie and or read the book at some point. Uh, you sent me the clip, which was actually quite good. Brad Pitt's always good in those kind of movies. But I, I loved what Paul said about looking outside of just IT is okay too. You don't necessarily have to have someone with a background of pure IT. Yeah. Putting people together who have a variety of different backgrounds but who gel together as a team and that variety of experiences that each person has making them so much better specialists. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, um, I think, uh, reverberated with some of the things we've heard before and discussed before. Um, I, I am still curious about how the CIA, um, interviews. We'll have to look into that. Maybe we can find somebody who's, interviewed for a CIA analyst position, or, or maybe that's open information that we can read about. Yeah. Um, if any of you listeners out there know, uh, point us in the right direction. We'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Love to talk to you. <laughs> um, anything else before we get out of here? No, I think we are good. Just a reminder that we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Agent John White at B Journeyman for Agent Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios. Be a leader, not a manager.